0: Today's scripture is from 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with dancing and singing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him." When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Now I went on a backpacking trip uh, back in the early spring with some good friends from here at Sojourn, and it was a three-day trip i never... I've spent plenty of times in the woods, but I've never done a a real backpacking trip like this. Uh, We went to the AT, Appalachian Trail, and our plan was to cover, and we did. We actually covered, I'll tell you the end of the story, we made it out. Uh, But our plan was to cover 30 miles in three days, um, and to climb three mountains, essentially, in the midst of it. And... uh, that's a lot, you know, if you've never done it, it was it was a lot, it was intimidating. And the plan was, let's get the hardest work out of the way, days one and two, and so day three, you know, it'll be day three, we just got a little mountain to climb and then we just walk the ridge down as that's what they said, that's what they told me. And so day one, uh, first seven miles, it's amazing. We're all laughing. It's like, backpacking is the greatest thing in the world. Why don't I do this every weekend? And then kind of we turn the corner on a mountain and uh, a storm rolled in that unleashed water from heaven like I had never seen in my life. I mean, it was a deluge of just biblical proportions for about an hour. We're soaked, everything soaked. And then we have three mile mountain to climb, um, which probably took us another four hours. By the end, we were hallucinating. We got to camp, none of us wanted to talk to each other, kind of hated each other and just went to sleep. I'm like, okay, that's day one. Day two was a very hard day. We lost a man uh, halfway through. (laughs) Not like he died. He twisted an ankle and he's like, I'm done. Uh, I need to bail. It was a long day. We started at nine, finished at 7 p.m. of just nonstop hiking. But I'm like, but you know what? It's day three. Day three is the easy day. This is how we planned it. Now we're exhausted. We just got to climb this mountain in front of us. And then it's, It's all downhill literally after that. It's four miles or so uphill and on the ridge and five miles downhill. And so that night we're hanging out. As soon as we decide to get in our tents, just a storm comes and it doesn't stop all night. And we wake up in the morning and it's just a steady downpour all morning. We talked to some other hikers. They tell us, yeah, this isn't stopping today. And, you know, that's kind of the pain of backpacking is you get to certain places and there's no way out other than the way you came in. You got to hike. And so we start climbing this mountain. We get to the top and the top of the mountain's bald. Uh, There's no trees or anything. And the wind's probably blowing 40, no exaggeration, 50 miles an hour. It's raining and it felt kind of like sleet. The visibility, you couldn't see from here to the the back of the auditorium. I had left one of the zippers in my uh, rain jacket down and I was getting so cold and just freezing. uh, And I put my hand in my pocket. It was raining so bad that my pockets were full with water. And I was with my friends Scott and Nick. And I was like, I thought you said this was the easy day. Are you kidding me? And it was so discouraging. And I, I really, I was like, maybe I could just hide behind the rock, get out my sleeping bag, crawl in it and pray that i could just survive you know until the sun comes out when it we uh we stayed on this ridge for probably 4 miles and it was it was one of the most discouraging moments of my life and i'll tell you when we got off the trail i had tears in my eyes you know it was like we made it we got out alive but you have a lot of time when you, you're you're walking you know and you're hiking you have a lot of time to think and uh that day i don't know the lord just I feel like the, the good thing he brought out of it is he revealed to me, you know, as I was walking, and we even talked about, like, how much is this like life, right? You do the hard stuff and you think, oh, you got this expectation that things are going to get easier and then it doesn't get easier. In fact, it gets harder. And a lot of times what makes life so hard, the reason we get so discouraged is because of our expectation that things are going to get easier. And they don't get easier and they get harder and then we get really frustrated and really discouraged. Well, I share all that because we're looking at the life of David today, and we're actually going to cover three chapters in David's life, chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 20. And to keep this in context, David has just triumphed over Goliath and the Philistines, you know, the arch enemies of Israel, they're on the run. David slaughtered Goliath and everyone's praising him and cheering. There's dancing and music. And in the passage, Dana just read for us. We're even told that, you know, the people wrote a country music song for David. And they, they said, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David has tens of thousands. And this was a real turning point at this moment. That song wasn't meant to disparage Saul. It was meant to to celebrate David but we're told that Saul, in hearing this, was very angry. And this refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And so as we look at these three chapters, this is the turning point. David achieves this great victory, and then Saul turns his face against him. And so we're going to look at these chapters under two headings, the fury of Saul and the furnace of affliction, number one. And number two, we're going to look at the friendship of Jonathan and the faithfulness of God and what God is doing in the story. Because it's a fascinating three chapters. After Saul hears this song, he gets enraged with David. And his rage... Initially, it very irrational. We're told that he throws a spear at David twice while David's playing a harp for him, which is amazing that David stuck around after the first throw. You know, first time someone throws a spear at me, I'm done. You know, like I'm not sticking around, but David's faithful. Saul's just being a little crazy. But what we see, if you read the three chapters, is that over time, Saul's murderous rage, it actually escalates into cold-blooded carefully calculated assassination attempts on David's life. Six times in the three chapters, Saul tries to kill David. When throwing a spear at him doesn't work, he appoints David, makes David a chief military commander and sends him out on dangerous missions, hoping that David will go and die in battle. When that doesn't work, Saul tries to set David up with one of his daughters. And Saul's daughter, Michael, she falls deeply in love with David. And what makes it, you know, this, the story, it draws this out that the problem is that David's very, very poor. And Michael's a daughter. She's a princess. She's a daughter of the king. And to marry a woman like that, you would have to pay the father a bride price. And David didn't have any money to make that payment. And this is all Saul's plan. And so Saul wanted him to fall in love. So he, David would have to come and say, hey, what do I have to what do I have to offer you to to take your daughter's hand in marriage? And Saul, he says, you know, I'm glad you're in love. I'm glad you guys are in love. The only thing I ask, the only bride price I want you to pay is I want you to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Uh, You heard me right on that. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know what to tell you. It's just there. like It is what it is. Uh, I think it shows us, it's like a weird form of scalping. It's just weirder and stranger. And, and I think it lets us in and just kind of the insanity of Saul at the moment. And he said, hey, this is what I want from you. And David, because he loves Michael, he, he goes and he doesn't just slaughter 100 Philistines, he slaughters 200. But the whole reason David, Saul put David in that place, we're told in the text, this, this is what it says, Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So when that plan doesn't work, the beginning of chapter 19, Saul tells his son, Jonathan, go and kill David. I want you to go and kill him. Jonathan refuses. In the middle of chapter 19, Saul sends a group of soldiers to kill David. And David's wife, Michael, you know, it's it's almost like a movie. She puts a dummy in the bed with goat hair and they come in and they stab the bed and then they pull back the sheet and David's nowhere to be found because she helped him escape. And then chapter 19, David has one last interaction with Jonathan or chapter 20, and at the very end of chapter 20, uh, David becomes a fugitive. And for the next 10 years of his life, David lives as a fugitive on the run from a mad king. I want you to think about that, 10 years. Might be 15, but we'll just say 10. 2017, that'd be 2027. Now I wanna step back for a minute and hold all this together for you. God anoints David, says, You're gonna be my king. David, he embraces that call. He he winds up on the battle lines and he sees this. Philistine up there mocking the people of God and mocking God. Everyone else is cowering in fear, and David says, "No, no, no. This is not going to stand. We're not going to let this guy talk this way." And in a great act of courage and faith, David goes out by himself with no armor other than a slingshot, no weapon other than a slingshot. He goes out, strikes down Goliath because of his faith in God, and the reward For his faithfulness, because that was chapter 17, this is chapter 18, the reward for David's faithfulness is he's going to get to spend the next 10 years of his life living on the run as a fugitive from a mad king. He's going to be living in caves. He's not going to see his family. He's not going to see his friends. He's going to experience isolation and pain and loneliness like you can hardly imagine. Now, what makes this text even stranger (laughs) is that part of the reason Saul has gone crazy, part of the reason Saul is pursuing David is because of God. In verse 10, we're told, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. People read that and they say, well, what does that mean? I think what it means is that an evil spirit from God (laughs) came forcefully upon Saul. Uh, The word translated evil... it could be translated as troubling or bad or harmful, but the point is clear here that not only has God withdrawn his favor from Saul, he's actually sent him a spirit that's afflicting him and making him a worse man than he already was. And so part of the reason David is going through this 10 years of just torment, 10 years of hell, really, being on the run is because of God because of God's work in in Saul's life. And I hold all this before you because if you're willing to hear what this text is saying, it will challenge some of the most fundamental assumptions that you have about God and about life and about faith. Like, is this suffering, it wasn't God's plan B for David. This suffering, it wasn't like God said, David, I really want you to be king. Saul's in the way. I don't know what to do. My hands are tied. I'll help you when I can. God says, David, you're going to be king? David's like, all right, he slays Goliath. And God says, all right, now you're going to have 10 really, really rough years. I think so many of us, we think that if we walk in obedience, life's going to go well for us. If we walk by faith, life will get easier. You know, if we trust in God more, things will get better. Well, David walks by faith. He walks in obedience. He shows tremendous courage and life gets harder. And so what does this teach us? Here's what it teaches us. Oftentimes the way God rewards you for accomplishing a difficult task is by giving you something more difficult. Oftentimes the way God honors you for doing something very, very hard is by giving you something harder. You climb one mountain and he's like, that was great, here's a bigger one. And so we ask why, why would he do that? Well, think about our day. If someone like David were to arise and slay Goliath, what would we do as a culture? Man, we'd elevate him instantly, wouldn't we? We'd give him his own reality TV show. We'd give him a book deal with a ghostwriter to actually write the book for him. We'd hire a PR person to, to manage his public relations. I mean, that's what we do as a society. When we see someone who's got real potential, real talent, real something, we immediately elevate them. Which is why the lives of so many celebrities end in tragedy, because they were elevated too soon, because their gifts exceeded their character and their abilities exceeded their wisdom to use those abilities. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a speculation to say we know God's preparing David to be a king, and the way God's going to prepare David is He's going to send him ten years. Into the wilderness of affliction and suffering. And he's going to do this because a good king, you know, it's not, a good king's not made in a day, and they're not made in a classroom. They're made in the trials and lessons and hardships that arise out of much suffering and affliction. You know, growing up in the faith, when I, I became a believer when I was a teenager, and so those formative years, it was okay, how do we grow as Christians? And it was prayer, which is great. Read the Bible, which is great. Community, which is great. Church, which is great. And so I'm like, all right, these are kind of, you know, the the smooth stones of spiritual growth right here. I've got these things, I'm gonna do these things. And no one really told me, actually, one of the primary ways God grows you is through a whole lot of suffering. And one of God's favorite tools for growing us is a whole lot of suffering. God wants to make David into a king And this is something I try to tell you guys regularly. God wants to make you someone great. God isn't just concerned with your eternal destiny. He's not just concerned with you eradicating sin from your life, although he's concerned about both of those things. God is concerned with making you into a great person and a deep person, a person of courage and wisdom and compassion and faith. God wants you to be the kind of person that when troubles come in, To other people's lives, they call you. God wants you to be the kind of person that when other people's lives are falling apart, everyone says, you know who you need to call? You need to call my friend, John. You need to call my friend, Sally. They can really help you. God has a vision for our lives. that's so much greater than our vision to make us into great people. And we're not gonna become those kinds of people without suffering and hardships and afflictions. It's just not gonna happen. I mean, where do you really grow in wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what to do in 90% of life where the rules don't really, they're not really clear. You know, you don't know, should I go left? Should I go right? Should I say yes? Should I say no? Where do you learn how to make those decisions? Suffering, affliction. Where do you learn courage? The ability to step into hard situations. I don't know about you, but I want to grow into the kind of person that when I see a hard situation, I don't want to run. (laughs) Too often I see a hard situation. I'm like, that looks rough. I'm going to lunch. You know, leave me alone. But I want to become the kind of person that sees it and says, I want to step in and offer a hand. Where do you learn courage? Well, by being thrown in hard situations. Compassion. You can't teach compassion. It's only something that can be learned through suffering. Faith. Where do you grow in faith? Faith grow in faith when your own strategies, they fail you. You grow in faith when you can no longer rely on yourself. See, God wants to make David great, and so he is going to throw him into the furnace of affliction, and God wants to make you great. And so to do that, he is going to send suffering into your life. And it's critical that you understand this. I teach on this three, four, five, six times a year. And the reason I do is because if you don't understand that God's hand is in it, that he's sovereign over it, when it comes, it's gonna be that much worse. It's bad enough to be suffering. It's even worse to be suffering and to think, what's God doing? So Some of you are here and you're like, yeah, I know all this and all this. I know all this. I've, I've heard you preaching this plenty. Okay, well, here's a test for you. When you suffer, when when hardships come into your life, how do you respond? And I would say, you know, most people, they respond with the question of why, why me? What did I do wrong? And, And the why questions aren't all bad. I think the Bible offers us great examples of people who know how to cry out in their pain and agony, why? But I think a real sign of growth is When suffering comes in your life, you don't just ask why, but you also learn how to ask what. What is God up to? What is God doing? What is he trying to produce in my life? You know, the the New Testament holds forth this vision for maturity that I think so far from so many of us. James 1, it's a famous passage. James says, consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, (laughs) I've heard this so many times, so you just, you miss it. But I mean, listen to that. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So when really awful stuff and darkness comes into your life, be happy is what he's saying. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. She may become someone mature and complete, someone great, not lacking anything. So that's what James says. Paul, what I like about the James one, and that's why I put this one on here instead of Paul's, because Paul's is harder. James says, consider it pure joy. You know, he doesn't say it has to be joy, but you could say, hey, this is kind of a joy. God's growing me. Paul in Romans five, he says something very similar, but what Paul says, Romans five, verse three, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. We rejoice. What would it look like for you to be the kind of person when suffering comes into your life, you rejoice? And I'm not saying like this superficial, hey, this is awesome that there's so much pain. I'm saying, hey, this is really hard, but God is good and he's doing something. I mean, that's the vision of Paul. He's saying, I know how to rejoice when the suffering comes. Of James, I know how to count it as a joy. And yet when suffering comes into our life, we think, why, this shouldn't happen to me. Because we miss, God wants to do something great in us that will not happen apart from suffering and affliction. And if we're gonna become people with great souls and deep souls, we have to be the kind of people who, when suffering comes, we can say, I've been told to expect this and I've been told that God is in this and that he's sovereign over it. How do we become those types of people? That leads to my second point. The friendship of Jonathan and the faithfulness of God. You know, when I've been... I've grown a lot in my understanding of suffering in the Christian life through a lot of great teachers. And the one thing they all emphasize is that God is sovereign, which means he's in control and he's in charge when it comes to suffering. And I'll tell you, that truth really changed my life, recognizing that when pain was entering my life, it wasn't like God's hands were tied and said, I'd like to help you, but I can't because I'm too weak. No, God is absolutely in control. But I think one thing that I never heard enough of and one thing that I've been learning a lot over the last few years is God's not just sovereign over our suffering, he's faithful in the midst of it. He's not just sovereign over it, like he's got control. It's not like he's sitting in the back like, yeah, I know what's happening to you and that's, that's my will. But he's also absolutely faithful in the midst of our suffering. And that's what makes us the story of David and Jonathan in particular, their friendship is so powerful because when you first read through these three chapters, 1 Samuel 18 through 20, it seems like God is fairly absent. On the surface, God is hardly mentioned. It's three chapters and God's mentioned three times. And every time he's mentioned, it's connected to something very strange, weird, and disorienting. Twice, it's God sending an evil spirit to Saul. The third one, which I'll just, I didn't address because we don't have enough time to and because I have no idea what to do with it, is David runs to Samuel, the prophet, and he's hiding with Samuel. Saul chases him. Saul gets near Samuel, the prophet, and then the spirit of the Lord overtakes him. He starts prophesying. He strips naked and he lays down in the mud. I don't know what to do with that, but I'm covering my bases by just telling you that I'm skipping that. (laughs) So these are the three times. Where is God in this moment? Well, he's sending evil spirits upon Saul and he's causing Saul to prophesy and do very strange things. And yet we're also told on, on a few occasions in this text that the Lord was with David. So on the surface, God's very, very strange, but the promises, but God is also with him. I think the author is teaching us something pretty profound about our experience of suffering here. That when you suffer on the surface of what's visible, God often seems strange and confusing and disorienting. Have you ever been there? God, what what are you doing? Where are, why would you? But just because on the surface, God seems very strange doesn't mean he's not with you. And the promise here is that God was with David and God was faithful to him. And we ask, well, where where do we see God's faithfulness in the midst of this deeply painful season? And the answer is Jonathan. Michael, to his wife, but Jonathan. And Jonathan's one of the most remarkable figures in the Old Testament. You see, Jonathan was Saul's son. He was the quote-unquote rightful heir to the throne. He was the prince. And when David slays Goliath, and parades start forming in the streets with people celebrating David, you would imagine Jonathan, who has his eyes on the throne, would see the threat in David, but he doesn't. Instead, we're told in verses three and four that after David defeats Goliath, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. One of the things the commentators all point out is that, that this this wasn't just an act of generosity. It wasn't like David's clothes were dirty. And he's like, hey, put something better on. This, this was a very significant act because Jonathan's robe would have had the, the insignia of the kingdom on it. And the robe represented his crown rights. And so when he takes off that robe and gives it to David, he's saying, I know what God's up to. And I know you're gonna be king and I'm not. And I want you to know I'm still behind you. Here you go. He gives him a sword, his bow. And what we see from Jonathan is he's this incredible advocate for David. And in chapter 19, when Saul tells Jonathan to kill David, Jonathan disobeys his dad and goes and warns David and says, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I will speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant, David. He hasn't wronged you. What he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan, who should have been in the throne, who could have easily joined his dad in attacking David and killing David, he sticks his neck out for David. And Saul makes the promise, all right, I'm not gonna kill David. That promise lasts for about four verses. And they try to kill him, and then in chapter twenty, it's a very. I encourage you to read it. Uh, Jonathan and Saul, his dad, they get into it pretty heated, and his dad makes these accusations against him. And Jonathan sneaks away, and he comes to David, and he says, "David, you need to run. My dad's not going to stop hunting for you." And the very end of chapter twenty ends. Jonathan said to David, "Go in peace." For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Eugene Peterson, he he wrote a book on the life of David called Leap Over a Wall. It's a tremendous book. In that book, one of the things that he notes from these three verses is that Jonathan's friendship with David, it bracketed the evil in his life that if you actually look at the very beginning of chapter 18, Jonathan makes a covenant. He says, I'm going to be your friend, and I've got your back. And then at the very end of chapter 20, he renews that covenant and renews that promise. And what Peterson says is that's symbolic, not just that that in the text it brackets, the friendship brackets the evil, but he says at a deeper and more profound level, Jonathan's friendship with David, it contained the evil in David's life. It made it bearable, that Jonathan, he provided stability for David in the face of uncertainty. He provided advocacy when his dad wanted to kill him and he provided a sense of peace in the midst of so much confusion. I mean, at the very beginning of 20, you can hear the emotion where David's just crying out to Jonathan, why does your dad want to kill me? What have I done? And Jonathan speaks truth to him. He says, you haven't done anything. It's not your fault. My dad's crazy. What Peterson says is that David never would have made it he never would have survived without the friendship of Jonathan. But David made it through this horrible, awful season because of Jonathan. You know, when we suffer, I don't think I'm alone in this. We're all Americans. We, we think alike in a lot of ways. But when we suffer, typically we want God to move in swift and dramatic ways, right? Bad stuff comes, we want God to shock and awe us. Like, bring it big. So we want what we want in this story is for God at the very least to send a fatal heart attack into Saul's life. You know, at the very worst, something much, you know, much, much more dramatic. And God just doesn't typically do that. I mean, here's Saul, he's a bad king. It just seems to make sense to all of us. God, get rid of the bad king. God says, no, I'm gonna let him linger for 10 more years. There's something God in his mysterious sovereignty, he allows for the souls of this world to remain on their throne for what us seems like way too long of a time. When we suffer, we look and we say, God, why in the world would you let this continue to happen? Step up, do something do something miraculous, and he just, typically he doesn't. But, that doesn't mean he's not faithful. It doesn't mean that he's checked out. God, in his faithfulness, the the way he most commonly and most often demonstrates his faithfulness, it's not through the extraordinary, it's through the ordinary. That's what David's story teaches us here. That God... We want him to do these miraculous things. God doesn't do the miraculous, you know, spectacular. Instead, he sends David a faithful wife, Michael, and a tremendously faithful friend. Typically, God demonstrates his faithfulness in ordinary ways through ordinary means. I'm not saying God is not doesn't have power to do miracles or the spectacular. He absolutely can. There's those stories in the Bible. But for every one story in the Bible where God does something dramatic and spectacular, you can find a thousand stories where God works through ordinary people in ordinary ways. And I hold this before you this morning because some of you here, you're waiting for God to do the dramatic in your life and you're missing out on his faithfulness in your life. You're waiting, some of you are stressed about finances and you're waiting for, you know, Publishers Clearinghouse to come knock on your door. Like if God's real, he's going to send a a $20,000 check and it's going to pop up in my mailbox. I mean, it might, I just, I've never heard that story. What you are going to find is some friends who help make ends meet. Maybe some people who lend you some money or give you some money to make the bills, you know, so you can pay the bills and so you don't fall, fall further behind someone who will give you their car. Some of you, you're here and you're you're waiting for God to do the dramatic, and you're suffering, and you're thinking, where is God? Where is God? And you have friends who are checking in and stopping by and praying for you. You have a community group who's walking with you. You have a spouse who loves you and walks beside you and sticks with you when you're at your worst and when you're at your lowest. It's God's faithfulness. And I don't know what it is about us, but we just were like, no, no, no. I want to see God do something bigger as if there's something bigger than a friend who sticks closer than a brother and walks with you for years through intense suffering. God, his faithfulness to us, if we're waiting for these these burning bush experiences, they happen, they just happen so rarely. And typically God shows his faithfulness through things like David, through things like Jonathan, through things like us gathering together on Sunday. And do you recognize that this gathering, it's, a, it's an expression of God's faithfulness to us. I know in, in the, the busyness of our lives, Sunday mornings, it's like the guilt, gotta go to church, should be going to church. Don't necessarily wanna go to church. We'll like it when we get there. Yeah, but I don't wanna get there. Thankfully, you guys came. So you guys won, won the internal struggle. But we see it as maybe a box to check and we don't recognize, no, this is an expression of God's faithfulness that we get to worship together. We get to sing together be reminded of the goodness of God together. Every week when I get up and I I start the sermon, what do I say? I say, peace be with you. That's not just a trite ritual. Every week I say that because if your weeks have been anything like my weeks, that have been filled with chaos and confusion and busyness and exhaustion, I need to be reminded, I have peace with God. You need to be reminded, you have Peace. Life might feel crazy, but you have peace. And it's through all of these ordinary ways that God demonstrates his faithfulness to us. And yet we so often miss it. You know, this this God working in the ordinary, it's one of the things that makes Christianity utterly unique. All other religions teach that our salvation is ultimately found in escaping the ordinary that the way we're going to be saved is we're going to escape the ordinary, that we're going to be swept up into some ethereal, transcendent spiritual existence. We're going to lose the shackles of our bodies. We're not going to do like the, the stupid things of walking and eating and all those things that we're like, well, I want to leave that behind. And I want to just have an ecstatic spiritual experience. see, at the heart of Christianity is the truth that God didn't, He didn't come to release us from ordinary human life. God entered into the ordinary. God didn't say, I'm extraordinary, you're ordinary. I'm gonna make you extraordinary. God said, I'm extraordinary, you're ordinary. All right, I'll empty myself of my extraordinariness and become a man like you. Jesus Christ, he so fully immersed himself in our humanity, in our ordinariness that he experienced things like hunger and thirst and temptation and exhaustion. And one of my favorite passages is in John 4. Jesus and his disciples have been walking all morning. It's noon. And we're told that Jesus told the disciples, you guys go on ahead. And John tells us, wearied as he was from his journey, Jesus needed to take a break. <laughs> I love that our God so fully enters into the mundaneness of our life that he's like, I'm even gonna get tired with you all. It's gonna be noon and even I'm gonna need a five-hour energy to keep going. I hold this before you because if you have disdain for the ordinary and the means that God works, you're gonna miss him. In Mark 6, Jesus goes back, visits his hometown. He begins to teach. People are amazed. Everyone's kind of celebrating. And then someone says, wait a second, isn't that the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So people start recognizing, wait, 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 no, no, no. I changed his diaper, if they had diapers back. I changed his diaper when he was a kid. No, I know his sister. She's the one who's the gossip. And his brother, he's all annoying. No, no, no. He cannot be the Savior. And listen to how the verse ends. And they took offense at him. He's too ordinary to be who he claims to be. And when Jesus goes to the cross, this is why he's mocked. If you're really the king, do something spectacular. If you've saved other people, save yourself. And in the greatest act of love in history, Jesus didn't. And he died the death of a common criminal, ordinary criminal between two common thieves. Now then we have the resurrection, which is spectacular and extraordinary. So God does do it. But the resurrection, what happens? Jesus has a human body again, still. And what are the stories we're given? I'm sitting around a fire eating fish. You know, if I were resurrected, if I die three days from now, I'm resurrected and you're writing stories about me, I would have you write about much cooler stuff than me just sitting and eating fish with my friends. But it tells us something about God and it tells us something about our future. When Jesus comes to return, He's not going to sweep us away to some spiritual realm. He's going to transform and renew our earth. And when he finishes that work, the scriptures tell us, they give us some insight to what it's going to look like, and we're not going to hover above the ground. We're not going to float everywhere. Scripture says we're going to walk. Sometimes we're going to march. It says we're going to sing and we're going to dance. I hope we're going to fly. I don't know if that's true. It's like a hope that I have but it's, not, it's unsubstantiated fully. Um, that would be spectacular. I do know, and the Bible is really clear, we're going we're to build houses and we're going to plant vineyards. And the ground's not going to fight against us, but we're going to have our hands in soil. And then we're going to finish up the day and we're going to sit around and have great meals together and enjoy great wine together. Have you ever wondered why the greatest joys in life are often, just so often the ordinary things? You work outside, you sit in the shade, you drink a cold glass of lemonade, you've got the breeze in your face and birds flying overhead. And you're like, this is wonderful. Because we were created for it. So as we come to the Lord's table, some of you are suffering immensely right now. And I want you to know God is faithful. Some of you are about to suffer immensely, and you don't even know it yet. And God is faithful, but you got to have eyes to see his faithfulness. Communion is a great picture of this. This bread, we buy it at Kroger, just so you know. Uh, the wine comes out of a box. The grape juice comes from Costco. It's not even Welch's like we get the generic. And so... <laughs> I'm being serious. Like this stuff, I mean, you could go buy this stuff at home. It's very ordinary. You can go have it anytime you want. But when, when we come together and we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us, we're, we're reminded, yeah, it's ordinary, but God meets us here. And as we come to this table and we share this meal together, we're, we're reminded of the solidarity we have with one another that while we are all sinners, Christ died for us all. Reminded of the hope that we have for the future. That this meal, it's going to pale in comparison to the meal we have, but we are going to feast together. Reminded of the peace that we have in the midst of suffering, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. So if you're here and you're in Christ, I encourage you to come and eat our bread from Kroger, but recognize the deeper and profound mystery of it, that, that God meets us here and he's present to us in the ordinary. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you look to Jesus Christ who became ordinary for you, who entered into the sufferings of this world to redeem you. Let me pray.